Hey, and welcome to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. I'm Alex Press, and with me is Gabe Winant. This week, we're covering Chapter 5, Planting the Liberty Tree. We have a special guest this week. Gabe, do you want to introduce him? Sure. So our guest is Jonah Stewart Brundage, who is a sociologist uh, starting this summer as uh, a professor of sociology at University of Michigan, currently a postdoctoral fellow of some kind, right at the Harvard Kennedy School. Um, Jonah is future author of a book on England and France and uh, the formation of their ruling classes and geopolitics and diplomacy. Uh, Jonah and I also have been friends since we were like five, so it's nice to have him here. Jonah is here with us to talk about Chapter 5, but also to talk about something that we have teased and gotten into slightly a number of times over the show so far, which is the debate between E.P. Thompson on one hand and Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn on the other about the nature of English capitalism, English society, and the English working class. Uh, I think we've kind of referred to this mainly as the, the Thompson-Anderson debate. Um, but as a scholar of the elites of France and England, I thought Jonah would be a great guest to discuss this with us. Um, so let's get into it. Thanks, Gabe. It's great to be here. And thanks to you as well, Alex, for bringing me on. So uh, do you want to start by just laying out for us in a kind of brief way, what do you see as the kind of main sides of the debate? Basically, what happened is that Anderson, along with Tom Nairn, in a series of pieces in New Left Review in the early 60s, wrote these accounts of sort of sweeping suggestive, mainly intended as suggestive accounts um, of British history since the 17th century English Revolution as a way of sort of trying to make sense for what they saw as the generalized crisis of English society, politics, and ultimately the economy in the 1960s, and particularly as a way of trying to figure out what the tasks should be for the left at that time. Their method of doing that was to write, was basically to account for that crisis in terms sort of an entire history of English capitalism. And particularly, they wanted to make an argument that it was something about, and I'll get more into this later, but that it was something about the nature of England's transition to capitalism, the particular way in which sort of capitalist society and classes emerged in England that sort of accounts for its peculiar stagnation by the time you get to the 20th century, and particularly the failure for the working class to sort of turn itself into a revolutionary socialist organization. Um, so E.P. Thompson, who was at the time really, and continued to be the sort of premier, as you guys have talked about, sort of the premier social historian of England, 
but premier figure in sort of modern social history per se, took, for a variety of reasons, took strong offense to this. And partly, I, I don't actually fully know the history, but there's an element to this which is very much personal. E.P. Thompson was one of the founders of New Left Review. It was taken over by Anderson in 1962, I believe. And I don't exactly, I don't know if you guys, I actually don't exactly know what happened, but there's clearly a personal backstory here too involving conflict between them. Um, anyway, basically Thompson has a number of objections to this account, partly that it's just too sweeping and therefore simplistic, but in particular, he thinks that um, Anderson and Nairn as well, perhaps even more extremely Nairn, are, are setting up, I would say this is sort of the overarching gist of his, of Thompson's um, critique, is that they're sort of setting up the historical experience of England against a model derived sort of in a vacuum of Marxist theory that sort of England, but really no actual country and no actual historical experience could ever live up to. So basically they're attributing the failures of the English sort of historical experience and in particular the English working class to basically not be what Marx said, said they should be. Isn't it a vacuum that looks like France also? Like, isn't that part of the critique? So more specifically, what clearly, at least what Thompson suggests, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, is that Anderson and Nairn basically have an implicit model in mind, which is what at least their interpretation of the French historical experience looked like, particularly what they view as, as the sort of heroic you know, French revolution in which the bourgeoisie constituted itself as a Jacobin force which sort of which tried to remake all of society in its own image. So part of their argument is that the reason why the the English working class could never become a hegemonic revolutionary force in the own right was it it was because the English bourgeoisie had never first sort of posed the problem of Jacobinism to which the English working class could then respond because the English bourgeoisie itself remained parochial and in particular they argue subservient to the aristocracy. The English working class became what they call, or at least what Anderson calls, and here he's using Gramsci actually a lot, um, an economic corporate group rather than sort of a class with revolutionary and hegemonic pretensions. So the idea is it's not even that the English working class was incapable of fighting for its own interests, but it couldn't pose its interests in terms of a unit on a universal plane in terms of universal goals. It could only engage basically in labor struggles. So can we back up a little bit and just the differences between the French Revolution and the English Revolution? For example, you talked about a bourgeois revolution. What is a bourgeois revolution and what was the English Revolution in Anderson and Nairn's view? Right. So this is very interesting. So part of what they end up, what part of what Anderson suggests is basically the whole emergence of capitalism in England occurred in some sense too early. Ultimately, the problems with the English Revolution, as he calls it, which occurred, you know, there are a series of revolutionary struggles which did occur in 17th century England. The problems is that, or that basically they did wonders to sort of further along the English, the development of, of robust and ultimately world-dominant capitalism from England, but they failed to transform the broader, what he would call superstructures of society, and they failed to replace the old aristocracy with a new ruling bourgeoisie. Instead, um, the aristocracy itself 
was becoming a capitalist class and it just continued to rule and the and urban bourgeois people merged with it and then when a when a sort of industrial bourgeoisie emerged later they too were incorporated into this enduringly aristocratic formation so there was a sort of failure despite perhaps maybe even because of because of the early capitalist transition he suggests there was a failure to develop modern politics and culture can I just quote from Perry Anderson's Origins of the Present Crisis, which is what you're describing? What he says here is that the tragedy of the first proletariat, and he sees the English working class as the first proletariat, was not, as so has been so often said, that it was immature. It was rather that it was, in a crucial sense, premature. Its maximum ardor and insurgency coincided with the minimum availability of socialism as a structured ideology. Consequently, it paid the price of the forerunner. For simple technical educational reasons, the development of socialist thought in the 19th century had to be overwhelmingly the work of non-working class intellectuals. Thus, everywhere it came to the proletariat from outside. So this is what you were drawing on, but just to make it explicit what Anderson is arguing here. Right. The, the irony, right, of, of the first English, of the first working class is it happens before, Anderson suggests, like, that it, before there's an actual theory of the working class in its historical role, i.e. Marxism. So they don't actually have those resources, those intellectual resources at their disposal. And so Thompson doesn't find this convincing as a way of describing class consciousness and experience. Not at all. And I think there's a variety of reasons he finds it not only unconvincing, but troubling. And I think first one key, there's a number of points of historical interpretation, but really at a theoretical level, I think it's what you just alluded to, that Thompson finds there to be something tremendously elitist, I think, at best elitist and perhaps even authoritarian about the idea that you would need intellectuals like Perry Anderson himself or his earlier Marxist surrogates to, um, to help the English class develop a radical consciousness, which of course, because of course the whole point of the English working class is major historical text is to stress at least to some degree right how radical that homegrown consciousness was can we talk a little bit more about uh hegemony i think when you were talking about the way that the english aristocracy related to the emergent english bourgeoisie you referred to it as a relationship in which the hegemony of the aristocracy uh is untroubled and that means that eventually as those two elite classes kind of merge their hegemony over the proletariat is in turn secure. Uh, what does it look like for, I mean, to begin at the earlier point, what does it look like for the aristocracy to have hegemony over the emergent bourgeoisie concretely? What are we talking about when we say that? I mean, I think what Anderson means by it is a whole lifestyle um, and culture putting a lot of emphasis on quote-unquote traditional values perhaps articulated for the first time explicitly by some by someone like Edmund Burke um and along with it a sort of well very much also an emphasis on on Nairn brings this in I was just rereading Nairn's text and he brings this in in particular an emphasis on the country over the city um so it's really hegemony at the cultural level that what you would think of as sort of an old-fashioned um, aristocracy with all its manners and etiquette continues to um, sort of shape the, the reference point, the cultural reference points 
of the emergent industrial bourgeoisie itself in the 19th century, and also just literally in politics. There's some that they get in to some dispute over sort of very mundane prosopographical issues of the, of the composition of, of parliament and the various governments in the 19th, in 19th century England. But, but basically Anderson's claim, which I think is pretty much correct, is that most of the prime ministers, much of these cabinets in 19th century England were dominated by people from the landed aristocracy, not necessarily literally the titled nobility, but landed aristocrats rather than big industrial interests from the cities, from, say, Manchester or something. And then to complete that question, what then does the hegemony of the bourgeoisie in the 19th and 20th century over the emergent proletariat look like concretely? I mean, it means that the proletariat is stuck in this sort of separate, he calls it economic corporate, by which he means, again, I think that the the working class they may have strong sort of traditions of labor agitation. They have strong trade unionism. There may be even a radical bent to that, but they're not posing, basically they're not posing the problems of socialist politics in an articulated fashion. And they're not organizing around revolutionary socialist transformation in an articulate fashion. Which of course what leads Thompson to accuse Anderson of fitting all actually existing historical experience into this, this mold of this Marxist image and then condemning everything that doesn't fit that. So what do you make of this as someone who is a scholar of the elite in this period? Do you, how do you relate to this debate? It's difficult because, before I even get into me, I should say one of the difficult things about this debate is it's framed in highly polemical fashion. So although actually Anderson's initial sweeping um, historical narrative is not really a polemic against anyone other than maybe the British Labor Party. Um, Thompson, um, his response goes in some ways so overboard that it can be hard, hard to adjudicate these things ultimately. And in fact, Anderson, I had never read it, but I just went back and read Anderson wrote immediately after a response to Thompson's critique in which he goes way overboard too in sort of condemning Thompson's whole sort of understanding of, he basically says Thompson knows nothing about Marxism and he has ultimately a reactionary populist politics rather than a revolutionary politics. Um, and Anderson even said that he later regretted writing that. But um, so, so the highly polemicized nature of the debate can make it hard. But I mean, one of the interesting things is I think there's a lot that was generated actually from both sides around, for me, one of the more interesting things is just sort of, there's a lot of original interpretation of English and to some extent by extension by extension, European history that get, that does get generated in the course of this debate. I mean, Anderson's weakness is also his strength, which is the ambition to do the sweeping narrative. And Thompson, despite kind of condemning that, makes some really sweeping and interesting historical claims too in his response. So in some ways, the historical interpretation, I think Thompson comes closer to the mark, despite being deeply unfair to Anderson. I think- Can you tell us why? Anderson himself admits at times that the English aristocracy, while continue to have these aristocratic customs and habits to some degree, and Thompson also tries to show that they were just more bourgeois in their customs than Anderson thinks, but I'm actually not, I and mean, that part I think is less convincing. Um, there was definitely a landed aristocracy in England all the way into the 20th century that thought of itself in very traditional terms. But the more interesting thing Thompson suggests is that if in fact this was a class, as Anderson basically admits, that whose whole 
relationship to production and exploitation was itself capitalist. If this was a class who was positioned and reproducing itself and getting the fruits of accumulation through what was an entirely a capitalist structure of, yes, agricultural, but nonetheless wage labor-based economy, um, it's not really clear in what sense. Actually, if you are a Marxist, Thompson doesn't say this explicitly. A lot of his theoretical claims are buried. But if you are a Marxist, it's not clear in what sense the English bourgeoisie and aristocracy are separate classes in the first place. They might be separate status groups. I'm a sociologist, so sort of the Weberians talk about things like status groups, which are defined more explicitly or just in political and cultural terms. The bourgeoisie and the aristocracy might be separate in that way, but they're, they're a, in some sense a unified capitalist class to begin with because precisely because England is such an early, maybe the first modern capitalist society. So in some sense, English transition to capitalism is just a lot less problematic from Thompson's perspective than Anderson thinks. And it's not totally clear. I mean, this is where I'm with him. It's not to, once, you, once you do get out of the idea that there is some sort of ideal typical path through which uh, capitalist transition, bourgeois revolution, rise of the working class should have occurred, then it's hard to sustain anymore the notion that there's anything incomplete or wrong <laughs> with the English trajectory. In fact, it looks like the most pure capitalist trajectory there is. Can I ask on this line of capital's power in England? Um, so two things he sort of goes against. He says the two great chemical elements of this blanketing English fog are traditionalism and empiricism. And he goes, he sort of goes on about these two problems and in relation to Thompson somewhat, but really just in general. Can you describe what those two concepts actually mean in the way he's using them? Yeah. So I think, so when he talks about traditionalism, I think this is this, basically this notion that there's this, this hangover from the past that's haunting English society. It's the failure to have this sort of clean break with the past means that there's, there's all these aristocrat, you know, aristocrats hanging around. There's these institutions that just look antiquated, the most obvious example being the monarchy. Why did England never abolish its monarchy, right? Um, traditionalism, now Anderson's less naive about this than I thought rereading this recently. He actually recognizes the fact that some of these traditions were, were invented as self-conscious traditions, but they didn't actually have a long lineage. Nonetheless, there's this sort of real or not, or historically pre-existing or not, there's this obsession with tradition among the British elite. Um, so that part's, I think, again, think about, the, think about the aristocracy, the landed aristocracy and their um, the subservience everyone else owes to them. Empiricism speaks to this idea that there isn't a sort of robust tradition of a theoretical thought about the nature of society in England. Anderson makes one of the boldest claims he makes, and he doubles down on it in his response to Thompson's critique, is that England never produced a home, either a homegrown Marxist tradition or a homegrown, what he calls classical sociology, in the likes of Max Weber in Germany, Emil Durkheim in France. Um, Anderson's view is basically there's just, there's no, there's very little self-conscious intellectual theorizing about that, that attempts a totalizing vision of society or politics in particular. So one of the re so Thompson critiques him by saying, well, you didn't consider 
natural science? What about a figure like Darwin? Or for that matter, what about political economy and Adam Smith? Um, these are things that Anderson seems to overlook, but his point would be that there's no, that basically there's no sort of strong theories of society and politics, of which obviously the leading example is Marxism. England didn't have a homegrown Marxism, he claims. And it's striking that, uh, you know, if you look back on the 20th century, the English Marxist tradition that is by far the strongest one is the historical tradition, right? It is Thompson and Hobsbawm and Anderson himself, for that matter, um, and Christopher Hill and all these figures who were in their milieu who were historians. And as a historian, um, you know, I love that work and I relate to it very strongly, which is like why I wanted to do this podcast. And at the same time, uh, it is, I mean, it is the least theoretical uh, and the least totalizing of the ways of trying to understand society. I think of all, of all fields, of all academic disciplines, period, history, I always... I always say this, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong about it, but uh, history is the only one that doesn't even really have any theory of its own, right? It's purely, it has to import whatever theory it uses from sociology or economics or anthropology or something like that, or literature. Um, anyway, so that this dimension always struck me as being important in that Thompson is so intensely a historicist and a kind of empiricist himself, right? That he is really invested in the importance of tradition. I mean, the whole core of this book, actually, is the centrality of tradition for working class consciousness, right? That every time working class people enter into a conflict or into a, you know attempt to activate themselves politically, they draw on traditions from not just last year, but a century ago or more. Um, and the book is so concerned with showing the function of that historical process, no matter how much it resembles or doesn't resemble a kind of classic or you know abstracted Marxist account. I mean, for me, this is one of the limitations of Perry Anderson's account is actually the way it's dismissive precisely to people like Thompson. Christopher Hill is another British Marxist historian of this time who does really important work precisely on the English Revolution. These people are developing a homegrown Marxist account, but because, you're right, because they're historians, it's, it's in the least theoretical idiom possible in some sense. For Anderson, that's no accident because of British culture and ultimately the bourgeois culture in England. Um, it's sort of cultural and intellectual limitations which are bounded basically by empiricism. Um, so what he means more broadly there, I should just say too, is, is basically by empiricism is just a way of, a sort of mode of apprehending the world that, that sort of takes evidence and sense data as they come in and describes and accounts for them without raising it to the level of a theoretical system, right? Um, and so that's precisely what Anderson finds problematic. Thompson wouldn't deny this necessarily. I mean, he does several things. He tries to say there's just more Marxist theory in Britain than Anderson accounts for. Um, he particularly takes, Anderson, particularly takes Anderson to task for ignoring the role of the British Communist Party during an earlier period in which Thompson was himself a member of the Communist Party um, earlier on. And, but also, he basically defends empiricism. He says, Anderson calls empiricism an ideology. It's not an ideology. It's just an idiom 
for presenting one way of presenting thought. And there's times, I think you're right, Gabe, there's times at which Thompson believes, I think this is just a better way of developing theory. I think for him, it's connected to some notion of praxis. It's actually the empirical or empiricist mode is ultimately uh, sort of a way of avoiding the, the sort of divorcing of theory from practice, which Thompson sees as something that's sort of horribly gone wrong, both both in Stalinism on the one hand and even in Western Marxism on the other hand, with its increasing sort of um, removal from actual labor and political struggles. I mean, Anderson wouldn't deny this. Partly Anderson sees himself as trying to reconcile these things. But Thompson ultimately, I think, would accuse Anderson of being a sort of theoretical elitist in the same way that Anderson accuses Thompson of being an empiricist. And just to be clear at the time, as far as what Anderson and Thompson were doing, I mean, Thompson sort of famously was constantly teaching at these schools. Can you talk a little bit about what the two of them biographically at this point in time? I mean, Anderson's the younger one, but beyond that, what's the relation? Right. So Anderson, I believe, was born in 1938. So I think that makes him about 15 years younger than Thompson. Um, I mean, Anderson's an extremely interesting figure because so Anderson goes to Eton and then he goes to I forget if it's Oxford or Cambridge one obviously and then I believe never I mean he doesn't have a PhD he is this both sort of um, you know highly cultured highly elite self-educated though you know public intellectual right and so he's very young he's some sort of phenom at a young age and Gets, and gets involved, I guess, with the New Left Review, which was only itself founded in the late 1950s. He gets involved, I don't exactly know what year, but by 1962, he takes it over. Um, obviously, he's run it ever since. But uh, there's this, this, something happens, which I actually don't know the details of, but Thompson was one of the founders. And Thompson, I don't think, writes for the New Left Review ever again after Anderson takes it over. He starts writing in this thing called Socialist Register. Yeah, I think he maybe comes back to New Life Review for some of the disarmament stuff in the 80s. Oh, I'm yeah. Not sure. yeah. Oh, that would make sense. But that's a whole later. Sort of and they clearly had had a, again, I don't know what to what degree they had a personal falling out, but clearly it's very polemicized. By the 80s, they're much kinder to each other in writing. Um, Anderson, I should, the other thing I should say, does become, though, I mean, enters American academia too, and you know, has for a long time been, he's emeritus now, but was a, was a professor of both history and sociology at UCLA. And is what you would call a, a historical sociologist, I would say, first and foremost. Um, and is one of the people who really ambitiously has tried to blend the social theorizing of sociology and of classical sociology with, with ambitious historical narratives and explanations. So what do you take away from the debate for yourself? I mean, it, you, you talked about how you, you kind of come down on both sides of it in various ways, but if you were to kind of try to resolve it in your own mind in a, into a useful form, how do you do that? As a student of 18th century English and French history, what this boils down to me, for me in some sense, is that much of what, what, much of what Anderson says about England not living up to some sort of Marxist model of bourgeois revolution is in fact correct, but everything he says goes even more strongly for most other European countries. In fact, if you look at the French case, 
while it's true that the people, that the Jacobins themselves came from, you could call them petty bourgeois, they were lawyers and things like that in their background, they were urban people. Nonetheless, this, this too was not a bourgeois revolution sort of in any convention, in any communist manifesto sense. There was no, there were, there were, the productive relations were not bursting asunder the, the existing relations of production in the French Revolution. In fact, France was very much still a society pre-1789 in which arguably capitalist relations of production had penetrated almost not at all. That's, that's a point for debate. This is what I would, this is what I would argue, however. And therefore, the seemingly much more bourgeois in terms of the people who were involved, revolution in France, was in some ways even less connected to capitalism than was, um, than was the English Revolution of the 17th century. So, you know, there's a, this other historian, Arno Mayer, has made this argument about the persistence of the old regime throughout Europe, which Anderson himself, I believe, endorsed somewhat, um, in which basically these landed aristocracies remained politically and culturally dominant throughout all of Europe, all the way down to the First World War. Really, we need to think about um, European history pre-1914 as, in some way, one long hegemony of aristocracies, or at least landed elites. Um, now, the, so one of the interesting tasks becomes how to sort of, if you're you're interested in Marxist class categories. Just say, if you're, even if you're interested in class analysis, how do you reconcile that um, with these notions of, sort of the persistence of, of tradition? Um, and that's where I think the interesting variation occurs because England, like I was saying, I think one of Thompson's interesting points is just to point out just how capitalist the English aristocracy actually was. Landed aristocracies can reproduce themselves through varieties of means. They can have a whole variety of relationship to the beads of production into modes of exploitation, right? In the case of England, this was capitalist agriculture. Um, it's in terms of, of sort of the market dependence of everyone involved, of, of you know, increasingly wage laborers, but even of, of tenant farmers were themselves highly dependent on, on the market. They didn't have control of their own means of subsistence and reproduction. So, um, so thinking through how sort of you could have the emergence of capitalism in England without anything that looks like a communist manifesto version of the bourgeois revolution, and then how you could also have the emergence, obviously these other European countries by the 19th century, like France, become capitalist societies too, but how that would happen there also without the emergence of anything that looks like a quintessential, quintessential bourgeois revolution. In many cases, actually sort of modernization from above led by state elites, punctuated periodically by sort of massive tumult from below, you might say. Yeah, it's also a striking reminder of how important it is to do class analysis of the ruling class, and that the ruling class also is a class that's always in formation and always in struggle in its own ways, actually. It's winning that struggle constantly, but it's still in it. Um, and, you know, that's something that I take from this debate and something in particular, you know, thinking about what you just said, this is sort of speculative and I don't know that I really want to defend this position, but, um, you know, the thing that I got from reading uh, The Persistence of the Old Regime by Mayer was that the bourgeoisie could never rule in like the kind of classic liberal, you know, 1800s era on its own, right? It needed to keep the aristocracy in place 
and kind of dress itself up as the aristocracy in some way. And then the First World War destroyed that. The interwar period, the bourgeoisie was left without its aristocratic armor. And that gave you fascism, right? As they allied themselves with the petite bourgeoisie instead, basically, and, you know, maybe upper segments of the working class. And then, you know, the Second World War destroyed that coalition. And then the post-war sort of social democratic period was basically a kind of negotiated compromise between the bourgeoisie and, you know, sections of the proletariat, uh, which neoliberalism then destroyed. Um, and so now the bourgeoisie stands on its own, right? And, like, that is presumably an important part of what structures our era and gives it its own forms of chaotic development. I find that convincing. But you're right, you wouldn't get that unless you, you thought about elites and ruling classes too, and their own forms of organization and ideology. What I think is that like all the questions that um, have been raised about like the political questions, relationship of intellectuals to the, to the proletariat or the working class um, theory and praxis, I think is a good way to go into chapter five because it discusses this at length, especially... I think about the relationship between the intellectuals of this movement um, and their relationship to the more like common person and how repression from the state and whatnot keeps severing and then re-tying these two groups together. So why don't we go into chapter five? Sound good? Yeah, I feel like our readers slog through all like 100 pages of this chapter and they deserve at least a half hour of discussion. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, there's a ton of stuff I learned in this chapter and I found it very interesting but it was also, I found it to be very much a cycle of repression and rebellion and repression and rebellion and repression and rebellion, like drawn out kind of almost month by month, uh, which was very impressive as a question of research and narrative, but also uh, it was hard. I found it hard to kind of know where we were at all times. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's funny that Thompson sort of acknowledges this throughout the book. He'll say, you know, we went the long way around to get here, or we must now pause and think about two years of development and... Um, so there's a bunch of jumping back and forth. But um, I mean, I what I found sort of on a higher level of this chapter, what I found helpful and interesting was the relationship between this repression and how it actually affected consciousness. This is like a key point Thompson is making throughout the chapter is both this is affecting how workers and intellectuals are relating to each other and to the state. Um, it's also affecting ideas of what people you know, are advocating for um, and where people are sort of boiling over past demands into more radical ones based on repression. So, I mean, I think he does. It's a, you know, for all the slog that this chapter was, um, I actually found it um, quite helpful into understanding his project that he's doing here in this book. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can't actually count on Thompson to tell you pretty early on what, what the chapter is going to be about, even if he doesn't quite do it so explicitly. Uh, and on page 103, which is the second page of the chapter, I think that's that's sort of where he does this. In November, a correspondent was writing from North Shields direct to Pitt, who's the prime minister at this time, describing the seamen's strikes and riots. Um, P.S. Shocking to relate, the mob at this moment are driving some seamen or officers that have discovered a reluctance to comply with their mode of proceedings naked through the town before them. In So that was a quote. In, he writes in terms bordering on panic. When I look around and see this country covered with thousands of pit men, keel men, wagon men, and other laboring men, hardy fellows strongly impressed with the new doctrine of equality, and at present composed of such combustible matter 
that the least spark will set them in a blaze. I cannot help thinking the supineness of the magistrates very reprehensible. So there, I think you kind of get the two key things of the chapter, right? Um, that there is this combustible element spreading through the country in a visible, if not quite uh, totally, it, it's visible, but it's not quite a, on fire yet, right? And that raises the question of the behavior of the magistrates. That is to say, what, what kind of repression are they going to uh, bring to bear on them? Uh, I thought he also did a, he helpfully kind of walks us through events um, that kind of set the story in motion um, on page 106. So I'll just, I won't read aloud, but I'll just describe the kind of sequence of events I took from this. So in, uh, this is in 1792 is really where the story is beginning. Uh, the second part of The Rights of Man, which we've talked about in the past, is published in February. And it sells 200,000 copies within the year in a population of 10 million. Um, and moreover, it's uh, in the hands of all these working people everywhere. You know, he says, uh, it's been dropped, uh, dropped not only in cottages and in highways, but into mines and coal pits, quoting an observer at the time. Every cutler in Sheffield has a copy. In Newcastle, more than two-thirds of this population, populous neighborhood, are ripe for revolt, especially the lower-class inhabitants. Payne's book is found in Cornish tin mines, in Mendip villages in the Scottish Highlands, and a little later in most parts of Ireland. So it's everywhere, right? Um, shortly thereafter, in 1792, the Constitutional Society is founded, and then the Whigs found the Society of the Friends of the People to try to co-opt and moderate this agitation. Now we're in, that gets us to May. I'm just going to go through the end of the year. That gets us to May, um, when there's a royal proclamation against seditious publications, aimed in particular at Payne. Then in summer of 1792, the war starts. The Austrians and Prussians invade France, revolutionary France. The king and queen are arrested and the reign, uh, the reign of terror begins. Uh, the Republic is proclaimed in September in France. So until September, they thought it might be a constitutional monarchy, but then it, you know, the Republic is proclaimed in September. In November, uh, the Association for the Protection of Property Against Republicans and Levelers, which is the main counter-revolutionary organization, is founded. In December, Payne is outlawed in, in absence. He's in France. And Rights of Man is condemned as seditious libel. In, in January, Louis XVI is executed. And in February, England enters the war. So that's kind of the cycle that sets this chapter in motion. And just to give a sense of, um, I mean, you gave some of the sense of how popular Payne's book is. But at one point, he quotes the attorney general who's during Payne's trial complaining that the rights of man was, quote, thrust into the hands of subjects of every description, even children's sweetmeats being wrapped in it. So it's everywhere. Um, so it's sort of the year of pain, 1792. It's just amazing to think of a piece of, uh, you know, kind of polemic having this kind of role. I mean, I guess it's, you can think of other instances in history, but it's it's not that common. Sure, yeah. I mean, what was interesting was in the last chapters, I can't remember their names, but he describes, and they actually come up again somewhere in this chapter, the sort of counters to pain, not only Burke, but there's this woman who writes lots of, like, very cheap pamphlets that preach submission from, you know, the poor being submissive. Um, and she's sort of driven to this by Payne's pamphlets and other things and actually does sell quite a lot. Um, he gave the numbers and it is in the hundreds of thousands. So there's this, like, weird, it's a real war going on of pamphleteering um, that is, yeah, extremely hard to imagine. It's the, it's the posting of its day. It's the posting of its day. <laughs> Uh, and it's also, it's it's very striking how much um, 
the kind of struggle uh, that plays out over the course of the early and mid 1790s gets concentrated symbolically on pain. Um, you know, there's this nature, so there's this kind of counter revolution that I, I want to get more into in a second. Um, but, you know, it takes the form of uh, mobs that he calls, that are called church and king mobs often, uh, or anti Jacobin mobs. And very frequently they burn pain in effigy. Um, here's a quote on page 112. In December 1792, quote, the effigy of Thomas Paine was, with great solemnity, drawn on a sledge from Lincoln Castle to the gallows, and then hanged, amidst a vast multitude of spectators. After being suspended the usual time, it was taken to the Castle Hill, and there hung on a gibbet post, erected for the purpose. In the evening, a large fire was made under the effigy, which was consumed to ashes, amidst the acclamations of many hundreds of people, accompanied with a grand band of music playing God Save the King. And he goes on basically over the course of the chapter to just casually refer over and over and over to burnings of pain and effigy, um, anti-pain mobs, and so on. So he is really um, symbolically playing this very central role. And also there's, he talks about on 115, um, an anti-Jacobin sheet that says, a handbill that says, you know, warning, you could be burned not like pain hath been in effigy, but in body and person. Um, so it really is the like the reference point um, of this revolt and counter revolt. I was just also quite amazed actually reading this to understand the counter revolution that happens uh, to see it in what felt like such modern terms. And it was difficult here not to think that Thompson wasn't trying to make us think of the early cold war. I mean, that, that may be wrong, Um, but at least it put me in mind of the kind of, Red Scare episode in this country, if it didn't really happen in England in the same way. But, um, you know, it's sort of a full-fledged counter-revolution, um, or very nearly so. You know, in, on 115, for example, uh, he's describing the main counter-revolutionary uh, society the, the, for the protection of property against Republicans and levelers. And he writes, he's just sort of describing their activities. Uh, and he writes, in London parishes, where the influence of Reeves' association was strongest, house-to-house inquiries were made. In St. Anne's, a register was kept with the, quote, complexion, age, employment, etc., of lodgers and strangers. In St. James's, inhabitants were called upon to denounce for incivism all housekeepers who would not oblige their servants, workmen, and apprentices to sign a declaration of loyalty to the Constitution. No tradesman was to be employed who had not been cleared by Reeves' agents, and publicans were refused licenses, who failed to report suspected persons. Collections of flannel waistcoats for the troops were pressed forward by members of Reeves' committee as an auxiliary means of testing loyalty. And from waistcoats collections went on to mitts, drawers, caps, shirts, welch wigs, stockings, shoes, trousers, boots, sheets, greatcoats, gowns, petticoats, blankets. So there's what he calls a heresy hunt um, of quite significant proportions, right? Such as they're basically confiscating people's clothing to make people demonstrate their loyalty to the king and the constitution. So I have to say that was some of that was new for me too. And I didn't realize, assuming that Thompson's interpretation of this is correct, yeah, I didn't, I just didn't realize the degree to which the, gover- the government and the governing class in England at this time was so freaked out by Jacobinism. I mean, I've yeah, and it's paramilitary also. That's the interesting thing, right? I mean, there is a ton of government repression, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But uh, 
the thing I just read, you know, I'm sure they're kind of basically approved in, by the government and sort of functioning in the interest of the government, but it's a paramilitary kind of civil organization, which really feels like a 20th century thing. You're right. The Red Scare dimension, too. I mean, sorry, I shouldn't say that they were. It's, it's common knowledge that they, you know, they go to war against revolutionary France by the beginning of 1793, but the degree to which they see the enemy within as well, right? The Jacobins within... Um, who are trying to turn in England into revolutionary France. Well, this is what he says again in sort of giving the play of what the chapter is going to be on 104. He says, um, you know, it was working men in villages and towns over the whole country claiming general rights for themselves. It was this and not the French terror, which threw the property classes into panic. Um, so to your point exactly, it's actually, sure, there's a war going on, but it's in fact the organic roots of this at home um, are what's leading to this paramilitary and also state repression. I mean, I was going to bring up the just incredible amount of the role of spies in this chapter. Um, I found fascinating the spies that were infiltrating all of these groups um, and providing some of the best kind of information about their numbers and activities. Yeah. It's all, it's amazing how many of the prosecutions that get described in this chapter begin with, apparently just a comment that somebody has made like someone who's overheard saying yeah goddamn the king or whatever just in conversation um and that leads to you know prosecution and then transportation to australia or something like that yeah the one guy who went back to scotland to stand trial even though he didn't have to tob said suggests he did it out of he he thought he would be a traitor to the cause if he didn't return to Scotland to stand trial. And then they transport him to Australia and he dies a year later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an interesting thing about that where he then, Thompson has this argument um, that he doesn't... He says that his that guy's willingness to sort of stand trial in itself then inspires decades in the future, you know, people's memory of these times and these characters as sort of the prototypical freeborn Englishmen who are defying the state and being honorable. He also um, says that this is an example, again, that you see, I think, a few times in the course of this chapter of uh, repression overreaching politically. Um and I think, as you're saying, Alex, the the felt sense of civil liberties and rights that English people apparently have um, means that the capacity of the state to repress this kind of incipient revolution is not unlimited. And this guy, by and you know others like him who quote sacrifice themselves, Thompson says on 129, save England from a white terror. Uh, because they demonstrate the limits of how far state repression can go, which I thought was interesting, although it's not clear to me that it's it's true. I mean, it well, seems like there sort of, there's sort of is a terror. Another, another way he shows that is like on 135, he's talking about Hardy, obviously, as another of these characters. And so, you know, he's talking about Hardy's trial and he says the public found in Hardy once again one of those images of independence in which the freeborn Englishman delighted, a firm and dignified commoner defying the power of the state. And then he says that to Hardy being found guilty would have provoked a riot. And he goes on to talk about how um, I forget what page, but he talks about how there were hundreds of warrants already written. Should Hardy have been able to be found guilty, there would have been this mass repression um, and none of those were actually followed through on. So if that's the case, then it does actually make some sense to say that these the public pressure on um, both from the jury and from the state um, 
on the judges and whatnot um, actually did stop what could have been much worse repression. Yeah, it's amazing. They can't get convictions. Right. Everybody's he talks about there's this one character, I think, named Bins, John Bins, maybe. Um, he, he, at one point Thompson describes him as having a charmed life because he's constantly getting away, like getting tried for high treason and then being let go. And he eventually just goes into another part of the country and lives a life there with many of his friends. Um, so he never actually has to face full consequences. Um, I found him like just this funny character that kept popping up throughout the chapter. Who's sort of linked to like, is he part of the underground resistance? Is he part of this and that? Um, but in the end he just gets away. I also think we're seeing Thompson do something here that he we've seen him do probably in every chapter at some point where he is at least he's tacitly saying the so-called liberal constitutional tra- tradition of England is actually the force that generates something that we can kind of recognize as being similar to what we call in the 20th century totalitarianism. Right. And like these people who are kind of making a comment offhand. And then, you know, the, the police come and grab them and, you know, prosecute them and they send them to what is England's gulag, which is Australia. Um, right. I, I think he is. I mean, he's, he's not, this is one of the kind of polemical purposes of the book, right, is to dissociate the working class tradition and working class movement from the Stalinist endpoint. And instead to try to kind of render that accusation at like the Cold War liberal West. Um and so I think in most chapters, at some point, he tacitly does this, where he tries to suggest that, you know, the forces of like secret police and gulag type, you know, repression are actually found, you know, among the kind of like canonized figures of English history. And it's interesting because while that's true, also, as you also noted, though, briefly, Gabe, before is that these trials don't always get the desired verdicts. They're not by any means always getting the verdicts that the prosecution wants that the that the government wants and there is i mean obviously thompson i think you're right has this biting critique of of liberalism but he also has a commitment perhaps an overly naive one to some degree i'm not even sure about just the degree to which britain was sort of a liberal society just in the descriptive meaning of that term from a very early age and the fact that the law worked in this way in which you could, I mean, that's, it's the sort of double-edged quality of liberalism. It permits of this extremely bloody penal code in the case of England. Um, I think it's the, there's the most capital crimes in, the, in England of any European country. And yet a judicial system in which there's, the pre, there's a sort of legitimate, sociologically legitimate pretense of non-arbitrariness, even if it's ultimately still obviously working at the behest of property. And um, it makes you wonder if this, if what, if the sort of enduring hegemony of, let's just say, capital in England has less to do with the aristocratic hangovers, as Anderson suggests, and more just with the degree, with a very thoroughgoing nature of it's liberalism and the disorganizing tendencies in that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> Alex, what are you going to say? Um, well, I was going to change the topic to something that I thought was interesting and also resonant with the debate with Anderson, um, which is the role in this chapter of the intellectuals and the sort of middle class reformers to the working class members. Um a couple characters come throughout the chapter. One is that um, the guy Place, I forget his first name, um, 
Francis, yeah. And then also Thelwall, um, who is like a very endearing character in this chapter, um, who's constantly self-aggrandizing, his, telling his wife about how many people went to his speeches and things, um, which I thought was really funny detail to include. Um, but on so on 139, Place is already sort of moving away from the the London Corresponding Society. And he says, Place is probably accurate. Well, so before I get there, he's kind of questioning Place's recollections because he has sort of some motives in mind to distance himself from the more radical elements of this movement. Um, So Thompson is prefacing this by saying, these things might be inaccurate. These things might be accurate. Um, So Place is probably accurate in saying that as early as 1795, he saw the role of the working class reformers as accessories to middle class or aristocratic reformers in parliament. He says this represents a withdrawal from the agitation of, quote, members unlimited, while at the same time embodying the strengths of self-education and painstaking organization. Um, And then the similar sort of look at um, Thelwall's lectures um, and where his relationship to the broader membership is much stronger in a lot of ways um, and ends up leading him to take certain risks um, that others don't. But I wanted to hear about these characters. Place strikes me as exactly the figure that Anderson is saying the English working class is in general. Um, or at least it's kind of its organic intellectuals and its leadership, right? He, I mean, he's interested in reform, uh, but he is also, like, he's internalized a whole set of kind of bourgeois norms and ideology, Um about you know the place of the working class in a broader society that he doesn't imagine transforming, and uh, Thompson, for that reason, clearly prefers other characters here, like Thelwall, um, to Place. And there's this very strange moment uh, in talking about Place on page one fifty five, um, where Thompson uses the N word and not in a quote, um, but he's he's talking about. Um, He's talking about the London Corresponding Society and the kind of different representations of its social composition and what how it how it was and what it what it meant. And so first he quotes Place, um, describing it this way: "The usual mode of proceeding at these weekly meetings was this: the chairman, each man was chairman in rotation, read from some book, and the persons present were invited to make remarks thereon, as many as chose did so, but without rising." Then another portion was read and a second invitation given. Then the remainder was read and a third invitation was given when they who had not before spoken were expected to say something. Then there was a general discussion. The moral effects of the society were very great indeed. It induced men to read books instead of spending their time at public houses. It taught them to think, to respect themselves, and to desire to educate their children. It elevated them in their own opinions. And then Thompson says, all this is very well. It is a splendid account of the first stages in the political self-education of the class and con- and containing an important part of the truth, it is partly true. But we cannot fail to be aware that Place was also sitting to James Mill for his own portrait, James Mill being a kind of liberal thinker. So in other words, Place is trying to represent how he wants Mill to see him. Utilitarian uh, thinker. In particular. Yeah, John Stuart Mill's dad. Um, he was sitting to James Mill for his own portrait as the white man's trustee N-word. So that's, I just like, that was a weird moment reading the chapter that, uh, I think it's both telling in terms of what Thompson thinks and also seemed worth flagging. Yeah, I wrote a big question mark in the margins next yeah. to that. But um, anyway, to your point, Alex, um, I do think that th- for Thelwall, he has kind of something else in mind. Right? He doesn't see all 
these agitators and intellectuals in the same way. And for that matter, he doesn't even see the London Corresponding Society in the same way. Uh, just later, later on down the same page, um, he describes how, on the other hand, many other divisions you know, met in taverns as opposed to private homes. They were harried from tavern to tavern by the authorities, presumably. They sang songs in which the clergy were a standing object of abuse. They smoked, etc. Um, and I think this is important at the end of 155, 156. Thompson really wants to make this point very forcefully. Uh, of the social composition of the society, there need, there need be no doubt. It was, above all, a society of artisans. Surviving divisional registers show silk weavers, watchmakers, cordwainers, cabinet makers, carpenters, tailors. The register of one division with 98 members shows nine watchmakers, eight weavers, eight tailors, six cabinet makers, etc. Um, <laughs> I was going to read the whole thing, so I'm glad you got there first. Uh, I mean, it's cool to, to like see all of the, you know, types of job that existed at this time. At, at one point in this chapter, he refers to a whitesmith, which I guess it makes sense. There are blacksmiths, there are whitesmiths. I have no idea what that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that there's these two sides to this working class social and intellectual uh, organizational life that he's exploring, particularly in the sort of second half of this chapter, and place and Thelwall stand in for. And can we also talk about this guy, Spence? who's like a very perplexing character. Um, he influences Thomas Evans and writes about agrarian socialism, getting rid of private property and land. Um, and I think he's the one who authors the thing that was to me most memorable in the chapter, which is the rights of infants. Um, he sort of writes, writes about women's right to divorce and addresses certain pamphlets um, to women. And then he also writes the rights of infants, um, which I thought was an amazing historical find from Thompson. <laughs> Um, but he's just sort of this weird eccentric character, right, who's fairly uneducated, um, but seems to have this influence on others. Yeah, I mean, I think Thompson is trying to show here that um, this social world of the kind of radicalized artisans of London in particular produces intellectual and political innovation, right, that people actually uh, are developing kind of through their own experience and their own um, engagement with the world. They're, they're developing, in some cases, quite radical critique for their time. And I would say one thing we haven't talked about yet, but that um, Thompson brings up a couple times in the chapter, is that this isn't only about repression and sort of this outward organizing, but also about an economic crisis that's going on. So he says at one point on page 131, that this, all of this organizing was the harvest not only of persecution, but also of rising prices and economic hardship. And then later he quotes um, this historian of the time on page 142, and he said, the historian says, a new instructor was busy amongst the masses, want. And so prices are soaring in 94 and 95. And that's having, you know, to talk about Thompson's understanding of how change unfolds in history happens you know the structures of the economy are still here and they're having a major influence on the people as they move through these organizations yeah i mean and that's part of the underlying mechanism in this chapter two of the war right that the, i mean the war is what's driving the kind of economic dis, uh, disturbance um and it's interesting you know he's not he's not so interested in tracing out like in fine detail the relationship between uh, what you're right is clearly the kind of causal engine of this at some level and 
the activities that he really is interested in. He kind of like, you know it's there and you see its effects, in particular because the war itself has these kind of um, ideologically similar dimensions to, like the confrontation between England and France, right, is a confrontation over a revolution in France. And so it matters at home. It's not just like a colonial war or something that would matter less to people at home. Um, But he's not so interested in like, you know, identifying, okay, what is the, like, let's figure out what the effect of the war on prices and employment is. Mm-hmm. How does that then play out for, you know, weavers, miners, um, you know, whitesmiths, <laughs> whoever. whoever. Uh, and then, like, let's follow that into the kind of con- consciousness and ideology and activity, which would be the more kind of orthodox. Right. Like, that's, that's how Eric Hobsbawm would write this story. Mm-hmm. Which can I, I can also say just from the perspective of a theoretically minded sociologist could be incredibly frustrating because the precisely because whatever the causal mechanisms involve get buried in the narrative repeatedly. Though I think it's interesting that there may be a political reason for this too, right? Which is that Thompson doesn't, you know, sometimes he'll get he gets accused of being basically someone who just reduces class to class experience or reduces class to class consciousness. There's no there, there, there's no sort of objective economic relations. Clearly that's not true. Clearly what he's suggesting is that there are a sort of set of objective economic relations within which, which is sort of the sets the terrain, right? Within which class formation happens, but it can never fully determine it. But in stressing that, I think there's almost a desire not to provide a full causal explanation because that would do away with the sort of human element and the, the sort of celebrated indeterminacy of history here, which you couldn't have predicted how exactly this would pan out. At the same time, there's an interesting moment on 156, 157, where um, he, he says... These English Jacobins were more numerous and more closely resembled the menu people. Jonah, what does that mean? Um, I mean, literally like Me- the, the little people to some or Basically the, little, the okay. um, yeah. the oh, you know, he's talking about the basically the crowd. He's saying they more closely represented like the sans-culotte in, in Paris. The, okay, the Paris right. Well, that's what he goes on to say. The, uh, who, who, who made the French Revolution then has been recognized. Indeed, they resemble less the Jacobins than the sans-culotte of the Paris sections, whose zealous egalitarianism underpinned Robespierre's Revolutionary War dictatorship of 1793-1794. Their strongholds were not yet in the new mill towns, but among urban craftsmen. Here he's talking about France. Among urban craftsmen with longer intellectual traditions. Oh, sorry, he's talking about England. With longer intellectual traditions. In the old industrial city of Norwich, in Spitalfields, where the silk industry, da 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 Sheffield. Uh, just as in Paris in the year two, the shoemakers were always prominent. These artisans took the doctrines of pain to their extreme, absolute political democracy, root and branch opposition to monarchy and aristocracy, to state and to taxation. In times of enthusiasm, they were the hard center of a movement, which drew the support of thousands of small shopkeepers, of printers and booksellers, medical men, schoolmasters, engravers, small masters, and dissenting clergy at one end, and of porters, coal heavers, laborers, soldiers, and sailors at the other. So I read that because it struck me that he... He's saying something here that is a quite economistic claim, actually, uh, which is that Paris and London effectively share uh, this this kind of radicalized artisan stratum um, who have fairly similar ideologies 
in both places, even shoemakers are very important, right? And kind of play quite parallel roles in the revolutionary movements of their countries, although one is more successful than the other. But that's much more uh, kind of orthodox than Thompson sort of wants you to think he's being, I think. Can we talk a little bit about the naval mutinies that are going on in this chapter, which which is history I did not know anything about? Yeah. At one point, I mean, he makes this great statement um, about the nature of revolutionary crises. I won't, I'll just read it really quickly and then we can talk about it. Read all of it. It was amazing. It was amazing. Well, (laughs) I'm not sure where it begins um, as far as what's, let's see. Um, For the British fleet, the most important instrument of European expansion and the only shield between revolutionary France and her greatest rival to proclaim that the age of reason has at length revolved was to threaten to subvert the whole edifice of world power. Wow, that's a long sentence. Um, It is foolish to argue that because the majority of the sailors had few clear political notions, this was a parochial affair of ship's biscuits and arrears of pay and not a revolutionary movement. This is to mistake the nature of popular revolutionary crises, which arise from exactly this kind of conjunction between the grievances of the majority and the aspirations articulated by the politically conscious minority. But at the same time, the attitude adopted by the LCS toward the mutinies remained problematical. Um, so he's talking about, um, I don't know, Gabe, if you want to talk about why you like this quote. I mean, I just thought it was like a fantastic um, explication of what's being done here. Yeah, well, uh it stood out to me because I think it really captures Thompson's method in general and what's what I found most powerful about it, which is that people begin to take action uh, before they have fully articulated the reasons and significance of their action. And it is through the course of that action that they come to understand what they're doing. Um, or develop new understandings of what they're doing. It just rings so incredibly true. I mean, I write about labor. You've organized in the labor movement, and this is exactly, I think, how we understand action and praxis and thought is, you know, every there's contingent demands. Like right now I've been writing a lot about Amazon, and people are very worried about having masks and things. And so it's a very parochial concern, you might say. Um, but in fact, it's like fairly revolutionary because it's causing workers to self-organize within the biggest company on the planet. Um, and so it just rings very true as far as a like um, coherent model of what class struggle actually looks like in real life. Totally. Yeah. And again, I think I do think that's one of the more powerful, the, both theoretical and political takeaways of Thompson's whole emphasis of basically everything he writes, whether it's here or in the debate with Anderson is... There's a constant concern to start from the experience of the working class themselves and how they engaged with the conditions in which they found themselves. And yes, it can sometimes sound naive. Obviously, you wouldn't want to say that. It wouldn't make any any more sense to say that class consciousness is always true any more than it is to say that it's always false. But I think Thompson's position is if you don't start from that experience and you don't start from the everyday struggles in which people are engaging with their own conditions... You're lost, basically. Any sort of emancipatory politics is hopeless. Um, I also, I just think it's worth pausing on the mutiny. Just, I mean, I did not know about it. And at the bottom of uh, 167, he just, in describing what it actually consisted of, um, for a week, the Thames was blockaded by the mutineers. And there was talk among the mutineers of removing the fleet to France, where it, where indeed several ships in desperation finally sailed, which is just an amazing fact. I mean, 
like, can you imagine if, you know, the U.S. Navy blockaded New York for a week? It's crazy. Um, and, or, and, like, threatened to, you know, remove to China, right? Or, I mean, whatever. But, like, <laughs> uh, you know, this is, in fact, beyond that, because it's in the middle of the war, and the Navy was the one thing keeping France from invading. Um, so it's, like, treasonous kind of fully in a way that really is astounding, I think. Uh, it's also occurs kind of pretty close in time. And Thompson talks about this a bit to the Irish rebellion, uh, which is the most significant rebellion in the history of England's colonization of Ireland until the one that actually throws them out in, during World War I. Uh, and this one's in 1798. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So just a year after this. Um, mutiny. Right. So Thompson is naming the mutiny and the Irish rebellion as the kind of events of worldwide significance in this moment. And, um, both are connected very directly by this chapter to English Jacobinism, right? There's various kind of stories he has of his kind of main characters in the London Corresponding Society and so on, um, actually propagandizing among or relating in some way to the sailors on the one hand and to the United Irishmen on the other. Um, there's a convention he talks about at one point, a kind of national convention of the Corresponding Societies, where the United Irishmen send observers uh, and they all kind of, you know, fraternize um, and talk to each other in, uh, you know, call each other citizen, which is makes makes it kind of resemble a French Jacobin event. Um, so there's a certain kind of internationalism here also that I think is interesting, as well as anti-militarism, which we have talked about a bit before. There's also, I mean, it's also interesting as this happens, more repression comes and some of these characters. I mean, there's throughout this book, there's just more and more things being given um, capital offense punishment. Um, more acts all the time. So he, on 169, he's just describing someone who is asking John Bone um, in London from the society. He reported two divisions of the Maidstone Society active with 60 in attendance and ordered more handbills, particularly for the Irish soldiers, as well as copies of Bonaparte's address in Payne's Agrarian Justice. Following these events, two further acts were passed, imposing the death penalty for illegal oaths and for attempts to seduce the armed forces from their allegiance. Um, so there's real, I mean, the repression is coming because there's real inroads being made, it seems like, um, even as some of his narrators um, downplay uh, the size of this, these relations. So on 171, um, he's making this point. Well, it's just this remarkable thing. Um, so sympathy with the Irish rebellion was certainly not confined to Irishmen like Bins. The LCS published on January 30th, 1798, an address to the Irish nation. Um, signed by R.T. Crossfield, President and Thomas Evans' secretary. And it's just this address that Thompson says, redeems the English from the charge of total complicity in the Irish repression, and which included an appeal to English soldiers in Ireland to refuse to act, of eight, to act as agents of enslaving Ireland. Um, I won't read the whole quote, but um, it describes, may the present address convince you how truly we sympathize in all your sufferings. May nations learn that existing circumstances have been the watchword of despotism in all ages, in all countries. Um, it goes on just sort of as addressing them as, you know, comrades of sorts. Yeah. Um, I also think, you know, a kind of interesting move that he, it's hard, as, as we've been saying, to kind of follow the cycles of repression and rebellion through this chapter. But clearly at the end, he, um, you know, there's this kind of escalation that you've just talked about. And this has this effect on... The radical movement, which is to split it in Thompson's telling between uh, two sections, one attempting a quasi-legal existence and the other committed to illegal organization. This is page 166. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that split, I think, runs between, for example, Place and Thelwall, who we were talking about before. Um, and as this kind of works its way out, there's a final wave of persecution, which, quote, tore the last Jacobin intellectuals apart from the artisans and laborers. Um, so he has this, at near the end of the chapter, he has this kind of long discussion of how um, the kind of intellectual figures who he's been following increasingly seem to sort of retreat. Well, this is fascinating, I have to say, because there's a you can read this completely from an Andersonian, if you will, perspective, um, which is that to have an effect of revolution, you needed some sort of alliance between intellectuals and working class, which was broken all too quickly in England in, in sort of in the wake of this, this scare emanating from revolutionary France and in the wake of repression. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, he narrates this kind of separation as the intellectuals kind of retreat and the kind of more illegally inclined, more radical elements of working class, you know, continue to try to kind of conspire for revolution, basically, in sort of what he describes basically as a kind of quasi-Leninist way. And he describes it as the beginning of working class consciousness forming. Yeah. Right. Um, he says, we, uh, we have the disorganized and persecuted working men without national leadership struggling to maintain some kind of illegal organization. Uh, but then on 177, I think this is a really interesting passage that you're talking about, Alex. Um, it is wrong to see this as the end, for it was also a beginning. In the 1790s, something like an English revolution took place of profound importance in shaping the consciousness of the post-war working class. It is true that the revolutionary impulse was strangled in its infancy, and the first consequence was that of bitterness and despair. The counter-revolutionary panic of the ruling class expressed itself in every part of social life. In attitudes to trade unionism, to the education of the people, to their sports and manners, to their publications and societies and their political rights. And the reflex of despair among the common people can be seen during the war years in the inverted Chileasm of the South Cotians and the New Methodist Revival. In the decades after 1795, there was a new profound alienation between classes in Britain and working people were thrust into a state of apartheid whose effects in the niceties of social and educational discrimination can be felt to this day. That is an amazing idea, I think. Well, it's also, and it's Anderson's point. And it's Anderson. Yeah, yeah. totally. It's funny that Thompson reacts so vehemently against Anderson. I mean, in some sense, that's what Anderson means when he said, he, I said he calls the English working class a corporate group. Um, that's exactly what Anderson means, that because in his reading, which here we see as Thompson's reading too, actually, is because there was sort of the, the Jacobin force in the English case with the involvement, too, of intellectuals got cut short so early, um, basically, that those universal problems were never posed to which the English working class could then sort of dialectically respond. And instead, there was this unbridgeable gap between the, sort of the intellectual milieu and the working class who existed, as Thompson himself says here, in a sort of apartheid-like situation. Of course, Thompson, the difference, I think, remains that Thompson doesn't want to read that going forward as somehow meaning that the English class, English working class was hopelessly stilted. He wants to find the radical potential even within that, right? As I'm sure we'll get to in later chapters as well. But it's interesting, the difference there between Anderson and Thompson doesn't seem as big. 
as I initially thought. Yeah, well, I mean, just I guess on this final point, um, you know, uh, sorry, I have some quote I wanted to get to. Um, he So he says in the, in the part we were just talking about, it's wrong to see this as the end. And then the very closing pages of the chapter, um, he pivots and he starts to look back on the 1790s from the perspective of people who lived through it and then remember it from much, much later. Uh, at the top of 182, for example, um, he quotes a uh, someone named Ebenezer Elliot, who is a kind of... Uh, figure in the you know, later decades uh, writing, I have not forgot the English reign of terror. There you have the source of my political tendencies. Um, and his Ebenezer Elliot's father was a Jacobin cleric at an ironworks near Sheffield with whom, quote, the yeomanry used to amuse themselves periodically by backing their horses through his windows. Similarly, um, at the bottom of the next page, Thompson writes, as late as 1849, a shrewd Yorkshire satirist published a sketch of a village politician, meaning a politically engaged person, not politician in the sense we mean it, uh, which has the feel of authenticity. He is typically a cobbler, an old man, and the sage of his industrial village. And then he, Thompson quotes, he has a library that he rather prides himself upon. It is a strange collection. There is the Pearl of Great Price and Cobbett's Twopenny Trash, the Pilgrim's Progress and the Go-Ahead Journal, the Wrongs of Labor and the Rights of Man, the history of the French Revolution and Bunyan's Holy War, the age of reason and a superannuated Bible. He is, of course, a great admirer of Bonaparte. It warms his old heart like a quart of mulled ale when he hears of a successful revolution, a throne tumbled, kings flying, and princes scattered abroad. He thinks the dreams of his youth are about their fulfillment. He, he indulges in grandiloquent metaphors about the sun of freedom rising above the horizontal atmosphere and professes knowledge of Russian affairs. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. But in part because it's so Thompson, obviously, but it's also, it feels like, oh my God, I know that character exactly. I want to say the part right before what you read, I thought was a really beautiful quote about this, where he um, he says, perhaps the consequence of English Jacobinism, which was most profound, although least easy to define, was the breaking down of taboos upon agitation among members unlimited. Wherever Jacobin ideas persisted and wherever hidden copies of rights of man were cherished, men were lo no longer disposed to wait upon the example of a Wilkie's or a Wyville before they commenced democratic agitation. Throughout the war years, there were Thomas Hardys in every town and in many villages throughout England, with a kist or shelf full of radical books, biding their time, putting in a word at the tavern, the chapel, the smithy, the shoemaker's shop, waiting for the movement to revive. And the movement for which they waited did not belong to gentlemen, manufacturers, or ratepayers. It was their own. Yeah. just think it's a good way to end um, this whole first part as far as what we've come through. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to return to Thelwall in the very last page of the chapter, um, I thought in a very similar way, this is uh, incredible, I thought. Well, first Thompson is quoting kind of conservatives writing uh, in 1812 about dismay at the spread of radicalism. The country is mined from below our feet. And then Thompson says it was Pitt, who, the prime minister, who had driven the miners underground. Um, but it was not Pitt. It was Thelwall who had the last word. And then Thel he quotes Thelwall in this amazing passage. Um, a sort of Socratic spirit will necessarily grow up wherever large bodies of men assemble. Monopoly and the hideous accumulation of capital in a few hands carry in their own enormity the seeds of cure. Whatever presses men together, 
though it may generate some vices, is favorable to the diffusion of knowledge and ultimately promotive of human liberty. Hence, every large workshop and manufactory is a sort of political society, which no act of parliament can silence and no magistrate disperse. I mean, this is just Marxism, right? This is John Thelwall producing a kind of Marxism mm -hmm. decades before. Um, and a kind of even like uh, council communism or something, right? In the idea that every workshop is a, is a parliament. Wow, that's very interesting. So like, go fuck yourself, Perry Anderson. Basically, yeah. <laughs> like all of now, this can be generated from within. Now we'll never get Perry Anderson on the show, Gabe. He knows I love him. If he'll listen to it, he'll learn. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, Jonah, is there anything else you wanted to say? Thank you so much for your sticking around for an hour and a half. Oh, it was fun. Um, no, I think, I think that's what I've got. Cool. Gabe, anything? No, I'm good. All right, I guess we should just end it here. Yeah. Thanks, Jonah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys both. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack.